Uh, my name is Cameron McLennan. I have the good fortune of being the moderator uh, this afternoon. We have a fascinating uh, presentation from a distinguished guest. I want to just remind you of a little bit of uh, housekeeping before we begin. Those of you who have cell phones, if you'd be kind enough to turn them off. I better remind myself to do that too. Um, there is a $10 cost, as most of you are aware, for lunch. And if, if, we, if we could choose someone at each table to um, take care of that business uh, for the table, that would be much appreciated. And we will eventually be around to collect that. Now, as you know, SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and relies on the contribution of members and session attendees to continue its work. We'd like to acknowledge our partners, the University of Lethbridge, for its support and the including its distribution of the notices and, of course, the good people here at Country Kitchen Catering for their preparing the lunch for us. Uh, as you know, or most of you are aware, the format is such that we will invite our guest forward to present to us for 25 to 30 minutes. She will then conclude her presentation, we'll enjoy some discussion and lunch together, following which we'll ask her to come forward and invite you to pepper her with interesting and stimulating questions. Now I'd like to introduce our guest. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Copeland um, is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Lethbridge, where she teaches courses in exercise physiology, fitness assessment, and health. A PhD graduate from the University of New Brunswick, she is originally a native of Nova Scotia, and to, as she tells me, much to her parents' chagrin, she has now found herself here in Alberta. Our benefit, their loss. Dr. Copeland's research laboratory is part of the Southern Alberta Centre for Successful Aging, an interdisciplinary research centre dedicated to the improvement of physical functioning and wellness amongst aging Canadians. That's an interesting term, aging Canadians. I wonder what it means. It doesn't have a legal definition, but it probably applies to more of us than we might well imagine. She's conducted research examining the effects of aging and exercise on hormone levels and is using new technology to study how patterns of activity change with age and during life transitions. She's going to be wrestling with and speaking to us about um, the context of aging and, I guess, aging well. Those of us who have either uh, experienced that ourselves or see it in our family members and know that that's a very challenging topic and, and, and unfortunately for some a very um, a disconcerting and an expensive issue as well. So without further ado, we'll invite Dr. Copeland forward. Would you please give her a warm Lethbridge welcome. Thank you very much for the introduction. I'm really uh, happy to be here to speak with you all today. As much as I wish I was wearing sandals and shorts, um, I did just have to remove a lot of snow from my car in order to get here. So, But we won't uh, worry about that too much. So the title of my presentation today is Use It or Lose It, A Prescription for Successful Aging. 
And uh, as was just mentioned, I'm with the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Lethbridge. And before I get started on the point of my uh, talk, I always like to take a couple of minutes and define the term kinesiology. Um, this is a term many of you have probably heard before, but yet many of you might not be exactly sure what it means, and I'm quite sure that my own parents are still not exactly sure what it is that I do. So I thought I would uh, just take an opportunity to define kinesiology, uh, which is the study of human movement. Now, uh, kinesiology, the study of human movement, is in fact a very multidisciplinary field of study. And so at the University of Lethbridge, our department of kinesiology is truly multidisciplinary, more so than at many other universities. And so what I mean by that is that we study human movement from many different perspectives, uh, many different angles. So this includes social science. So we have social scientists uh, in our department that study the sociology uh, of sport, the sociology of physical activity. We also have uh, people that are interested in the humanities, so they study the history of sport uh, or the philosophy of, of sport or the philosophy of physical activity. Um, the area that people might be more familiar with is the science side of things, and that's my side of things. I'm really interested in the physiology of physical activity, and in particular, I'm very interested in the relationship between physical activity and aging. And so that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. So it's a very good time to be interested in aging because there's lots of it going on. Um, uh, so obviously aging is something that we all do, uh, but I'm referring specifically to our population as a whole. And so in this figure I'm showing you uh, some demographic trends in Canada, which many of you are probably quite familiar with. We seem to see this a lot uh, in the newspapers just about every day. So this is percentage of the total population. Uh, and if we look at 1991, uh, 1996, 2001, what you're seeing here is the percentage of the Canadian population that is over the age of 65 and over the age of 80. So if you combine the two bars, you would have the percentage of our population that's over the age of 65. So you can see some, uh, some increases, but nothing too dramatic uh, since 1991. Now, in 2006, uh, the demographers tell us that this was the first year that members of the baby boomer cohort became senior citizens. So this is the uh, first year that baby boomers turned 65, and that year 350,000 Canadians turned 65. So that's approximately 1,000 per day. And that trend is expected to continue to accelerate over the next 10 years. So of course what that means if we look at projections based on that information, we can see a steady increase in the proportion of our population that's over the age of 65. So in 2001, one in eight Canadians was over the age of 65, but by the year 2041, one in four Canadians will be over the age of 65. So that's a full quarter of our population. So what are the implications of this? Well, one of the possible implications could be that we need uh, a slight change in our infrastructure. Um, Uh, joking aside, aside from that, I am going to talk a bit about what the implications of this uh, could be. 
So in addition to the aging of the baby boomer cohort, the other uh, explanation for this aging of our population is, of course, the rather dramatic increase in life expectancy that we've seen in Canada over the last century. And so this graph shows uh, women in red and men in blue. And you can see that from 1921, we've had a fairly steady, almost linear increase in life expectancy, such that right now, the average life expectancy in Canada for women is 82.2 years and a little bit lower for men at 77.1 years. Um, Within the next 30 years, that's expected to be 86 for women and 82 for men. So it's continuing to increase. Now, this is a good thing. Living longer is a good thing. I think we can all agree to that. Uh, advances in medical care, uh, improvements in hygiene and nutrition have all led to this increase in life expectancy, which is a good thing. There is one small problem uh, with this, of course, and that is the fact that, unfortunately, getting older is actually quite bad for your health. <laughs> so... Uh, In this graph, I'm showing you the percentage of the population over the age of 65. So the percentage of people who meet the uh, government's definition of senior citizen. So I just want to get that out in the open. I'm using the technical term for senior citizen, uh, which is the age of over the age of 65. Um, So we can argue about that point later. Um, The percentage of senior citizens that are affected by a number of chronic conditions. So we can see here uh, diabetes and heart disease, and what you can see here is the percentages are actually quite high for something like type 2 diabetes. What you can also see that's a bit concerning is that this, the difference between these two bars is only a four-year span, and we can see major increases in diabetes. Diabetes is becoming a particular problem in Canada uh, right now, but also heart disease. You can see things like hypertension and arthritis affect fully half of our senior population. So this is a concern. These chronic conditions are directly related to age. And I'll show you uh, a few more graphs to illustrate this point. Now, here I've taken uh, specific data from Alberta, although the, the data for Canada look very similar. And so what you can see here, again, is females in red and males in yellow. We have increasing age across the bottom. Uh, prevalence per 100, and so this is the age-specific prevalence of diabetes in Alberta. You can see that in uh, 20, 30, to even to 40-year-old individuals, the prevalence of diabetes is very, very low. But we get a very dramatic increase in the prevalence of diabetes around about age 50 uh, that increases steadily with increasing age. If we look at heart disease, we see a very similar thing. Um, In this graph, actually, we've separated them out uh, so that we have the red line represents individuals who have diabetes, diabetes being very... um, a significant predictor of developing heart disease, and no diabetes in the yellow line. You'll see a similar pattern with that dramatic age-related increase in the prevalence of of heart disease, Um, and you will see that for individuals suffering from diabetes, the picture is actually a little bit gloomier. So, uh, what does all of this mean? Uh, What are the implications of this? If we go back to our life expectancy graph, I think the point is that we need to be thinking less about life expectancy and more about what we call health-adjusted life expectancy. And so that refers to the number of years that an individual can expect to live in full health. And if I were to take those numbers uh, for, for Canada, not Alberta, but Canada, and plot them on this graph, 
you would see that they are actually quite a bit lower than the actual life expectancy. And so the health-adjusted life expectancy for women is 70.8 years, and the health-adjusted life expectancy for men is 68.3 years. So what this means is that the last approximately 10 years of one's life expectancy, you can anticipate, and the average Canadian can anticipate living that in poor health. So I think this is a concern, and at this point I could spend a lot of time talking to you about how expensive this will be and about the terrible burden this is going to place on our healthcare system in the next 30 years um, and about the economy, but that's actually not what I want to talk about at all. So whether or not that's true I think is actually not the most important consideration. And I think that what we really need to be thinking about is quality of life. And if you think about the numbers that I presented earlier, we're talking about quality of life among a very large proportion of our population. We're talking about quality of life among a full quarter of Canadians. And I actually think that's what we should be more worried about. So I think this is the ideal time to start shifting our focus towards the concept of successful aging and promoting successful aging. Now, if I were to ask all of you uh, to tell me what you think successful aging means, which is something I often do, but I don't think I have time to do today, so I won't, um, most of you would actually say all the things that I would want you to say. But nonetheless, I will define it anyway. So successful aging is a term that was first coined in 1987 by researchers by the names of Rowan Kahn. And obviously, they identified avoiding disease and disability as a very important part of successful aging, and I think we can all agree to that. Um, however, Rowan Kahn really wanted to emphasize that successful aging is more than simply the absence of disease. It's more than simply not being sick. It's also maintaining a high level of cognitive and physical function, and it's also maintaining an engagement with life. And only when you have all three of these components working together or overlapping do you truly have uh, successful aging. So whether or not we age successfully depends on a number of really important factors. It depends on biological aging. Okay, so the reality is that biological aging does occur. As time marches on, there are physiological changes uh, to the human body. And that's not something we have a, a whole lot of control over. Uh, obviously, environmental exposure plays a role in how successfully we age. Also something that, sadly, we don't seem to have a lot of control over right now. But the other important factor that determines how successfully we age is lifestyle behavior. And the good news is that's something we do have some control over. And that's the part that I want to focus on today. So um, there are various lifestyle behaviors that could be important. The three most critical ones, as they've been identified, um, in terms of successful aging are smoking, obesity, and physical activity. Now, as you heard from uh, my introduction and what I said in the early part of the talk, physical activity is actually what I'm interested in, and so that's the one that I'm going to talk about. So let's go back to our uh, map of successful aging. And let's think or talk for a minute about how physical activity can influence these three components of successful aging. 
So let's start with avoiding disease and disability. There is a, an ever-growing and very large body of evidence to uh, support uh, quite strongly that physical activity reduces the risk of chronic disease. It reduces the risk of diabetes. It reduces the risk of heart disease and stroke. It reduces the risk of osteoporosis and arthritis. It's, al it's also been shown to reduce the risk of certain types of cancer. And so uh, I don't think I need to spend a whole lot of time convincing you, hopefully not, that this component of successful aging can be really influenced by regular physical activity. So what about cognitive and physical function? So physical function, again, I probably don't need to spend too much time convincing you that being regularly active helps maintain physical function. It does. It maintains uh, mobility and normal gait, and it promotes uh, being able to move well into older years. Now, cognitive function is, the research on cognitive function is actually quite new. It's been fairly controversial until recently, um, but there's actually been some papers released very recently in the Archives of Internal Medicine, just two months ago, in fact, that uh, showed a very strong relationship between regular physical activity and reduced risk of cognitive impairment over time. So this is something we hear about a lot and that we need to be concerned about uh, promoting a maintenance of cognitive function. And now it seems there's pretty good evidence that physical activity will help with that as well. And what about engagement with life? Physical activity, depending on how you do it and why you do it, can also play a big role in that. Uh, there's a social component to physical activity that can be import an important part of maintaining an engagement with life. Um, things like goal setting or um, projects that involve physical activity, maintaining a garden, volunteering, these all maintain an engagement in life. And uh, combining the physical activity with that will really help us promote successful aging in the population. So... With any luck at all, I have, in this brief minute or two, convinced you that physical activity is a good thing. If not, I will show you a summary slide just to reiterate that we have good evidence to show that regular physical activity helps maintain muscle mass, maintain muscle strength, maintain bone density, maintain cardiovascular fitness, maintain or improve, I should say, uh, cardiovascular fitness, physical function, cognitive function, it reduces the risk of falls, and it promotes quality of life. It improves or increases quality of life. So this is quite a good sales pitch. Would we all agree? So I think this is a great sales pitch. And when you hear this sales pitch, you would have to assume then that most people recognize the importance of physical activity and that as we age and we get more time, right, no, fewer young children at home, retired from a full-time job, physical activity is really important to my health, it seems like a no-brainer then that older adults would be the most active uh, portion of our population. Agreed? Tricky, tricky. So, unfortunately, let's talk about that. I'm going to show you again Alberta-specific data, but the data for Canada as a whole looks exactly the same. Um, it's actually a little bit higher in Alberta. We are apparently a little more active in Alberta than the rest of Canada, apparently. 
So this is from the Canadian Community Health Survey. This is Alberta-specific uh, Alberta data. As I said, the yellow line is men. The red line is women. Here we have age across the bottom. So 12 to 14 years. This is the percent of individuals in Alberta who are meeting the minimum recommended guidelines for physical activity. So these are people who are at least moderately active. And we'll talk about what, what that means in a few minutes, what moderately active means. But let's just say this is not a huge amount of activity. This is a minimum of 30 minutes of moderate activity five days a week. And what you can see quite clearly is a substantial decline across age. And in fact, older adults, people over the age of 65, are the least active individuals in the population. Um, approximately half of, a little more than half actually, of men over the age of 65 are inactive. And the vast majority of women, closer to 70% uh, of women over the age of 65, are inactive. So this is bad news. This is not a good thing. Um, if you were to look at trends over the last few years, you would see evidence that things are getting better. So in this graph, I'm showing you physical activity among Albertans since 1994. And this is, this is not just older adults. This is all Albertans. And so you can see you know, some ups and downs, but a trend, obviously, for an increase in the proportion of, in, of individuals that are physically active. Uh, since 1994. And again, this is Alberta data. It looks very, very similar for Canada. Now, this is a bit perplexing for me and for lots of people to see this evidence that we're getting more physically active um, because there are other pieces of the puzzle that just don't fit with that. And so what I'm going to take a minute to show you right now is something very recent. Actually, this was published in March by Statistics Canada. And it's data from the Canadian Health Measures Survey. Um, and so this is direct measurements. They went around to the houses of thousands of Canadians and measured their fitness, measured their height and weight and things like that. And what they did is they compared that data to data that we have from 1981 from the Canada Fitness Survey. And so I won't go through all the numbers, uh, and perhaps you can't even see all the numbers, although I think they've done a neat job of uh, changing the silhouette. And I'll just make the point that this is a typical male, uh, 40, typical 45-year-old male in 1981 and today. And the typical 45-year-old male um, is heavier he has a larger waist circumference, and he's weaker with lower flexibility. So this is perplexing when you consider that we're supposedly getting much more active, um, but our fitness is declining and our body composition is getting worse. Uh, very similar thing with uh, if you look at the data from a typical 45-year-old woman. Uh, she's heavier. The typical 45-year-old woman is now overweight, whereas she used to be normal weight as classified by BMI. Uh, her waist circumference is larger. She's quite a bit weaker and has um, fairly similar flexibility. So how is it possible then, if we're getting more active, um, that our fitness is deteriorating as a nation? And this is a question that has perplexed uh, many researchers. And there's a few possible explanations for this, and I'm certainly not going to get into all of them. But the one that I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about um, is the issue of how we measure physical activity and, and what we're really getting at. So this data from CFLRI 
is what we call self-report data. So we asked people, how active are you? And they told us. And the other thing is what this is reporting is leisure time physical activity. And that's what's easiest for people to remember. If I were to ask you all how active you were yesterday, you would certainly remember if you went for a walk specifically for fitness, or you would certainly remember if you went to the gym. But you might not remember sort of the other things that you did throughout your day. So one of the things that uh, I'm working on in my research program is new ways to measure physical activity. So what I'm showing you here is an accelerometer. So kind of like a pedometer. I won't spend too much time talking about the... Um, talking about the technology, but it's better than a pedometer. Not only does it tell me how much you moved around, but it tells me the intensity of that movement. So it can tell the difference between someone who was walking and someone who was running, which a pedometer can't do. It also has a memory chip in there, and it can record this data every minute of the day for seven days. And so this is actually being used not just by me. This is being used uh, by StatsCan for the Canadian Health Measures Survey, this type of technology. But it's really improving our understanding of how active people really are. And so I'm just going to quickly give you an example from a study that I did in my lab. Um, I guess first I'm actually going to show you what kind of information we can get from an accelerometer. So this is one day in a person's life who wore the accelerometer for me. And these counts, higher counts, mean more intense activity. And so all I want you to see here is that this person, you know, they were sleeping they clearly woke up around 7 a.m. and started moving around. It looks to me like around 9.30 or so, they had quite a burst of activity, perhaps an exercise class of some sort. Uh, then, you know, fairly low movement throughout the afternoon. It looks like another little burst of activity after supper, perhaps a walk after dinner. And then a little bit more moving about until this individual went to bed. And so we can collect this data day after day, every minute of the day for weeks if we want and determine just exactly how much people are moving around without asking them to try and remember it. So the example uh, that I was going to give you from a study that I uh, did in my lab, we took a group of older adults from southern Alberta, about 40 of them, and we had them wear the accelerometer for seven days. So this was actually a fairly active group of individuals. All of them were meeting at, at least the minimum guidelines for physical activity. So if you look here, here's men, here's women, men a little bit more active than women, which fits um, what we know. But you can see this is minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per day. So this is how many minutes a day on average they did something that was at least as intense as a brisk walk around the block. And you can see that both men and women, on average, were getting more than an hour of physical activity per day. So that's more than the minimum recommended guidelines. So this was an active bunch of individuals, um, probably purposefully engaging in some type of activity every day. So that's great. But if we look at the rest of their day, this is where it gets a little bit interesting. And so I've broken down the 24-hour day. This is, again, average for all of them. And you can see that hour of good physical activity here in the pink slice. So there's their hour of physical activity per day. Of course, people need to sleep, and in fact, sleep is a really important part of good health, and so they got their 8 to 10 hours of sleep a day, which was good. This blue slice of the pie represents light physical activity. So this is how uh, much physical activity, so this is less intense um, than a brisk walk. So this is, you know, sort of moving about doing daily uh, activities of daily living. And so what that great big yellow slice of the pie represents is the time that was spent being essentially completely sedentary. So kind of what I have you all doing right now. 
And on average, eight hours of the day were spent in sedentary behavior. Now, that seems crazy at first when you think about it. Eight hours of the day, just sort of not moving much at all. Um, But when you really think about it, it's actually not that hard to imagine. Uh, If we think about television watching and screen time, this is a term we hear all the time now in the media, and we always hear it in reference to youth, children and youth. Too much screen time, too much time in front of the television, too much time in front of a computer, which is true. But I think it's interesting that we always hear about it in youth when, in fact, the data show that uh, older adults are the most voracious television watchers in all of Canada. So the likelihood of, of being a regular, what is it called, being a regular television viewer, so that's more than 15 hours per week of TV, goes up steadily with age. And almost half of Canadians over the age of 65 watch more than 15 hours of television a week. So I would argue we need to hear about this a little more, not just in terms of, of children and youth. Now, it's not just that we're sitting around watching television all the time, of course. Um, even when we're out and about sort of going about our business there, it's just so easy to be sedentary, right? We have drive throughs We don't even have to get out of our car to go and grab our coffee. Uh, we don't have to get out of our cars to go to the bank machine or to return a movie or any number. This is actually not in Lethbridge. I've not seen one of these in Lethbridge. That's in the Maritimes. Um, but in any case, uh, we really don't need to get out of our cars all that much. Even when we're trying to be physically active, we're headed to the gym, it's still possible to manage to do that with as minimal energy expenditure as possible. So I think uh, it's easy to see that there are barriers that we're all facing to being physically active. So I can tell you and I can tell everyone how important physical activity is to health and to successful aging, but the reality is there has to be something that's keeping most of the population from doing it. And so I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes at the end of my talk here talking about what some of those barriers are, and then perhaps we can sort of take that up in the discussion period as well. And there's a couple of points that I want to make here. One is that there are some barriers that are personal or individual individual barriers. And uh, if you ask the average Canadian um, what the, their main barrier to being physically active is, most of them will say time. Now, this list that I'm going to show you here was taken from a recent study that was specifically done with older adults, with seniors over the age of 65. And the number one reason that those individuals cited for being physically inactive is poor health, not lack of time, but poor health. Uh, another number two on the list was fear of falling. Now, I find this is interesting, and it can become a vicious cycle because we know that physical activity actually promotes health, reduces the risk of poor health. Physical activity promotes muscle, muscular strength, promotes balance, promotes mus, uh, muscular power. All of these reduce your risk of falling. So avoiding physical activity for these reasons actually becomes a terrible vicious cycle where these reasons become more prominent. Uh, lack of time was cited by many older adults, and I know, I know from my own parents and parents-in-law who are supposedly retired, that retired people are actually very, very busy, um, and so lack of time is still cited as an issue. That being said, I really think when anyone cites lack of time as a reason for being inactive, uh, that's an issue in perspective. Because I think if you think that you don't have enough time to be active, you're thinking of it as a leisure activity or as a recreation activity. And you don't have time for that recreation or that leisure. I think if we all thought of it as medical therapy, as medical treatment, um, we would find the time. 
Weather, I had to mention weather today. It was listed as a concern, um, and it can be an issue, and there's no question about that, but there are ways to work around this. There are indoor um, ways, to be act ways to be active indoors uh, when you have to. So those are individual barriers, personal barriers, that we all face and need to overcome. But I just wanted to uh, spend my last couple of minutes mentioning that I think this, since this is the uh, Council on Public Affairs, I think there are some bigger issues that, are, that don't occur at the personal uh, level. And so one of these is the built environment. And so most of the older adults surveyed in this particular study that I'm referring to identified the built environment as an issue. Good sidewalks, safe sidewalks, retail outlets that were within walking distance. I mean, who's going to walk to Costco? Let's be honest. No one's going to walk to Costco. Um, Safety was an issue both in terms of crime but also in terms of traffic, for example. Bike paths and walking paths make it easier and safer to be active outdoors. Accessibility and cost. These can be significant issues, particularly for individuals on a fixed income. Not everyone can afford a gym membership or uh, to join an expensive exercise class. And so, um, and transportation can also, is also often identified as an issue. So I think these are issues that um, we need to be thinking about as a population, right? These are things where we need more recreation facilities in all neighborhoods. We need easier transportation, and we need a built environment that's conducive to being physically active. And so I just wanted to conclude this part by saying that I think that people forget this is a public health issue. Uh, this is a public health issue as much as H1N1 is a public health issue. And so if you think about it, there is a personal choice component to it, of course, just like there is with anything. There was a personal choice to whether or not to get the H1N1 vaccination. That was a choice that people had to make. But there were tons of advertisements telling us why it was a good thing to do. They made it free for everyone to get. By they, I mean the government, made it free for everyone to get that vaccination, and they tried to make it very accessible for everyone to get. And so I think that uh, physical activity is as much a public health issue as something like a vaccination. And when we start thinking about it that way, that's when we might see real change uh, in our community. So I'll just leave it here for now, but I do have some other comments that I can make during the question period because I know people are going to want to know specifically what kinds of activity I think they should do.